Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me here today, Catherine. Um, I'm pleased to be here to, to speak with you about payer audits and appeals. Um, we have a pretty healthy agenda, so I'm going to get right into it, um, but I will try to leave some time at the end for questions. Today, we are going to go over the following topics, Medicare audits and appeals process, the commercial payer audit and appeals process, medical necessity, Medicare signature requirements, and the 60-day rule reverse false claims. So just as a heads up, my experience, um, a lot of my experience has been working with labs. So as I go through and provide examples throughout this presentation, um, I may skew some of those examples towards labs, but all of this advice can be used for any provider who's going through these processes. So we're going to start today with the Medicare audit and appeals process. And we're actually going to step back from the overpayment demand, which is what actually starts the clock on the appeal process. And we're going to go back to what I think is one of the most important communications that providers will get from a MAC. Um, the MACs are the uh, Medicare contractors like Novitas, Noridian, WPS. Um, and this really important communication is the records request letter. This is one of the two really big things that I hope you will take away from today, that a proper and diligent response to these medical records requests is critical. Before we get to that, let's talk about how these come about. CMS, as you all may be aware, is a big proponent of and extensively uses data analytics to decide who gets these letters and who's going to be audited. There may be other reasons, um, whistleblowers or other reasons that put you on CMS's radar, but more likely than not, these days, it's due to some statistic or piece of data that makes you as an, out an outlier as compared to what other, whatever other providers they have decided to compare you against whether it's unusually high billing, unusually high claim denials, using an uncommon code, anything. So I had the opportunity at a conference to speak to some of these CMS employees about the data that they use, and they have really no restrictions on how they set up these data analytic comparisons. So there's not a really good way to predict whether or not you will be flagged. Um, there may be a perfectly reasonable explanation for why you have popped up as an outlier on their data analytics, but it still flags you. So the MAC will send you a records request for anywhere from 20 to 60 records from a certain date of service range to review the records. Unfortunately, many providers or their staff aren't really aware of the significance of this request, and they simply send whatever's in their files. For example, for labs, that would you know, usually be a copy of the requisition and a copy of the report, the lab test report. And that's it. They submit it and go on about their days. What happens from this point, though, is why the, I find that these records requests are so critical to the process. The MAC will take the records that have been produced and determine which ones, based on whatever has been provided, should have been denied and which ones were properly allowed. Ultimately, they can take that percentage to calculate an error rate, which is used to determine the overpayment amount, which is then extrapolated. So math is not my forte, so we're going to take an easy example, but I caution you that the way I'm doing this math problem is not reality. The actual statistical algorithms are much more complicated, and there are specific software that is used to, to run these algorithms. But let's go back to... Um, 
the request, and let's assume that the MAC requested records for 10 claims, and the provider, in this case, let's say a pathologist, returned a requisition, the pathology report, and the claim form. The MAC reviewed those and determined that seven of those claims should have been denied, resulting in a 70% denial rate um, and an actual overpayment of $70. We'll assume that each claim was worth $10. They will then take that denial rate, that 70% denial rate, and extrapolate it over the entire date of service range, which is usually anywhere from, um, I would say, nine, year, nine months to two years. And then they will take that and determine that 70% of the claims from that date of service range should have been denied. Then they apply this extrapolation algorithm, and that simple $70 overpayment can easily jump to um, five, six, or even seven figures. We've had examples of an $8,000 actual overpayment that was extrapolated into $16 million. Typically, the denials at this stage are based upon medical necessity or insufficient documentation. So, as a first practice tip, I recommend that you put in process, put, in, put a process in place with some individual person or job title taking responsibility for responding to these and making sure that your staff is aware of the policy so that the records requests get directed to the right person. You want to make sure that um, that process is well known and that your staff is trained on it so that these don't get lost in the shuffle. I also recommend that you would consider getting an, a consultant or an attorney in place to help you organize the response and make sure it's comprehensive. Usually lawyers don't have a medical background, but because we look at so many of these, if we're in this field, we have enough experience to be able to do a spot check to tell you that for a medical records request response, going back to the example of the pathologist, just sending back in the requisition, the pathology report and the claims reform will get the, the claim denied almost every single time. You will need to add other things like progress notes, um, and not just progress notes from the day of the visit, but the day before the, the visit before the date of service in question, and more recently, the MACs have been asking for the date of service after the test. So it's critical to understand that the more documentation you can provide to establish that the services were medically necessary and properly documented, the more likely that the MAC is not going to deny that claim, which will then result in a lower error rate. And accordingly, if there's an overpayment demand, that overpayment demand should be lower. So the next thing we're going to move on to is the notice of suspension of Medicare payments. This is something else that also comes out prior to an overpayment demand. And these can be provided with notice or without notice and are typically in place for an initial 80 days but can be extended for an, an additional 180 days. These can include a prepayment review and you have to be careful when you're reading the notice of payment suspension because that prepayment review will be tucked in at the end of the letter and just a sentence right in, in another paragraph and you oftentimes clients will miss that. There is a possibility to file a rebuttal to the payment suspension and the prepayment review, and we've actually had a, a, a good deal of success in getting these overturned and having both or at least one of either the, pre, the payment suspension or the prepayment review terminated, um, but there are instances where that doesn't happen and instances where um, they can be extend, extended. 
You do have only 15 days to prepare and, and submit the rebuttal, but it is possible to get an extension. Um, I would recommend that if you get that extension that you um, get something in writing to confirm it. Once the MAC has reviewed the response to the medical records request, it will issue something called a post-payment review results and determination of overpayment letter. This is not the overpayment de demand, but it leads me to another practice tip, that you should act as if it is and start working on your appeal. Because as we'll get into shortly, the deadlines come quickly and there's a lot of work to be done. The post-payment review results letter should be the best source of information that you will get from the MAC as to why your claims were denied. It will typically come with an encrypted CD with all of the attachments on it. So you're going to want to make sure that you get that CD and that you can actually open it because it will be password protected. If you don't have the CD or if you can't open it, reach out to the MAC immediately and document all of the efforts you have made to reach out to the MAC in case you need to get more time later. The good thing about this letter is that, and, and its exhibits, is that it will give the provider a claim-by-claim -claim description as to the MAC's rationale for why each claim should be approved, denied, or changed. And it's typically a, a several hundred page Word document that will give you all of the information about the claims and their rationale for why it should be denied um, or approved. <coughs> Excuse me. The next thing to arrive is the overpayment demand letter. This is the letter that's going to start the clock for the administrative appeal process. And this is the last point that you really should be getting experts and attorneys involved. Although it sounds self-serving to tell you all to get counsel, it's really for the purpose of preserving, to the extent possible, the attorney-client privilege over all the materials, discussions, et cetera, that can be related to preparing the appeals documents. Um, we also recommend that if you do hire an attorney, that you have that attorney engage any consultants that you might uh, want to use so that the attorney-client privilege can extend to their work as well. Okay, so next we are going to move on to the actual appeal process. So the first level of appeal in the Medicare audit and appeals process is the request for redetermination. And as you'll see on the slide, you have 120 days to file your, your request for redetermination. But if you don't want the MAC to start recoupment, which means if you don't want them to start taking money back from the claims that you are currently processing, you need to file your request for redetermination within 30 days. Um, if you don't do that, if you don't get it in by 30 days, they're gonna just start recouping that money. And that is problematic for most of our clients. Um, you can submit new documentation at this point. Um, you know, in our original example with the pathologist, they just submitted the requisition, the pathology reports, and the claim form. Well, this is the point where we want you to go back to the referring providers, for example, if you're a lab or a pathologist, and say, we need your progress notes. We need your progress notes for the day you order the test, the day before the test, and the day and the visit after the test, so that we have all of that. Um, you can also submit documentation from a third-party billing expert or a statistical um, expert to challenge any extrapolation. We often recommend that our clients get an initial evaluation of the extrapolation because as part of the post-payment review results letter, part of those exhibits are all the documentation that is necessary to recreate the extrapolation. 
If any of that information is missing, you have grounds to appeal the extrapolation. Typically, that initial um, evaluation is only about four to six hours work of an expert's time, but it can be invaluable if they identify arguments that will invalidate the extrapolation. Um, the MACs have gotten pretty good at documenting their extrapolations, and the way the guidance is written, it's very broad so that it's hard to challenge the extrapolations, but we have been successful in invalidating extrapolations in the past. We also strongly recommend to our clients that they get a third-party billing consultant or expert involved, and we work with them throughout the process. So as attorneys, our job is to help you create the legal and administrative and regulatory arguments that go along with the appeal. The consultants are there to help us with their coding and or medical background to develop arguments from the documentation from a CMS standpoint so that we can defend those claims from that medical standpoint as well. And it can be really beneficial to have an independent third party report and review um, the records to make additional arguments um, on your behalf. So the next practice tip I have for you guys is that you want to make the document submission that goes along with your request for redetermination as dummy proof as possible for the reviewer. They are not likely familiar with your practice. They are not likely familiar with your records. Um, so we want to make this as easy for them to read as possible. These days we typically provide our documents in electronic form and use PDFs with bookmarks, Bates labels, and highlights. If you do a paper submission, which some Macs do still require, we recommend a tabbed binder with a detailed table of contents um, to keep everything as organized as possible. It should take 60 days for a MAC to issue a decision. Um, this stage of the appeal, it's you know, basically the MAC reviewing itself. So typically you're not going to get a, a wholly favorable decision, but we are seeing more and more partially favorable decisions coming out of the redetermination stage. So next we are going to move on to the second level of appeal, which is the um, request for reconsideration. On this one, you have a total of 180 days to file the request, but if you want to continue to avoid recruitment, you need to get your request for reconsideration in um, within 60 days. This level is the last time that you can present new evidence without a cause, and this is the first time that there's something that we would consider to be an independent review because it's moving to a different government contractor, a QSC. Um, Things to note, you can supplement new evidence before if, if the decision hasn't been issued yet, but that will add time to when the QIC um, has to respond. Um, the QIC can obtain evidence on its own, um, and they're not bound by local coverage determinations or other guidance, but, as, uh, but they must give substantial deference to what those guidance documents say. Um, additionally, for medical necessity determinations, the QIC must use panels of physicians or other appropriate healthcare professionals. So the QIC also gets 60 days to issue a decision. If they don't issue a decision in that 60 days, they are statutorily required to send you a notice to let you know that they're not going to finish, and you have an option to escalate. If you choose not to escalate, then there's no statutory framework or timeline for when the QIC has to issue its decision. Um, 
but you will get the benefit of having a reconsideration decision issued by a somewhat independent body. If you do choose to escalate, um, you'll note that the QIC will typically get five additional days to try and finish its decision, and if not, then it gets sent to the ALJ without the benefit of that independent review. So next we are going to move on to the next level, which is the request for the ALJ hearing. Um, at this point, once a reconsideration decision has been issued or the option to escalate has been made, recruitment stops. I mean, recruitment starts. So no matter what, there's no opportunity to stop recruitment at this point. So it will start. Um, there is an amount in controversy um, requirement. Um, no new evidence is allowed without good cause. The ALJ has 90 days to issue a decision, and there is also an escalation option as well. Um, and they will issue an opinion with findings of fact and conclusions of law. Now, I'm going to go to the next slide, which has the average processing time by fiscal year. Now, if you'll remember from the previous slide, slide the ALJ was statutorily required to set the hearing within 90 days. Well, as of the third quarter of 2019, I think the most re recent data I've seen so far is from July 24th, there was an average number of days of 1,361 days, which is nearly four years that you're waiting. Um, the backlog is primarily due to the fact that beneficiary appeals are given a, pri a priority over provider appeals. Um, there was a recent case um, in the district court in the um, District of Columbia, American Hospital Association versus Azar, which ordered CMS to get rid of the backlog by 2021. Um, and CMS has tried to make efforts to get that backlog taken care of. However, as I'm noting um, these statistics as they move through 2019, the processing time is increasing as opposed to decreasing, which is what you would expect. Um, as you as we move through this. So if you do get through the Medicare appeal, the ALJ, the next process in the appeals process would be the Medicare Appeals Council. You can get there either because a decision has been issued or because you choose to escalate. Again, um, you have 60 days to file, um, but note that CMS can also request this appeal. So if you're successful at the ALJ stage, the CMS can also choose to um, appeal the decision. Um, and also um, the council on its own motion can elect to review the ALJ decision. There is a 90-day time frame for the council to issue the decision, but again, there's similar backlog issues at this level as well, and there is an escalation option as well to the fifth and final level of, of appeal, which is the federal district court. Um, so now I'm going to move um, on to touch briefly on some of the other programs implemented by CMS in an effort to reduce the backlog and reduce the error that leads to improper billing. So the first one is um, OMHA's settlement conference facilitation. Um, this is for requests for hearings filed on or before November 2017 for Part A and B providers, and there is an express option there as well. I'm going to just run through these quickly because we still have a lot to cover. Um, there's also the OMHA statistical sampling option in which a statistician will pull random samples of claims, an ALJ will adjudicate those claims, and the outcomes are extrapolated, and there's really no opportunity to negotiate or settle on that one. 
it is what it is. And then the third one is an option for um, prior to there being an issue. This is the Targeted Probe and Educate program or the TPE program. And this is um, sent out to providers and suppliers with a history of high claim error rates or unusual billing practices. And you have three rounds of review to allow the provider and the supplier to improve accuracy. So it's basically three rounds of medical records review where you get to work with the MAC um, to try to um, correct your billing errors. If you can't get your error rate to increase to an appropriate level within those three, time, three rounds, then the MAC can and usually will refer you to um, CMS. Practice tip, and we're going to get to this you know, later when we talk about the 60-day rule, is that you need to appeal the denied claims at each round um, because they will also trigger obligations under the 60-day rule. So that's important to remember if you go through that process. Now I wanted to touch briefly on commercial payer audits, which are growing increasingly more common. So these are the audits that will come from Cigna or Blue Cross Blue Shield. We deal a lot with United Healthcare. Um, the process for each of these is determined by the individual payer. So you're going to want to check online. You want to check your contract, your payer contracts. If you're in network, your provider manuals and your provider contracts for process. Um, again, these will typically also start with a medical records request, um, or sometimes they just start with an overpayment demand. The good thing about the commercial process is that you can typically get, uh, it'll start with a special investigative unit investigator, but you can typically get pushed up to an attorney rather quickly, and from that point, you can negotiate with the payer to settle the demand. And it is possible to settle these claims for much less than what the overpayment demand is. Um, there is some leverage as well for keeping your in-network contract and things like that. But I will caution everybody that the payers are getting increasingly aggressive at going after providers who they believe are not complying with the contract, you know, going around the billing um, manual requirements and et cetera, and they are suing providers. So you need to be cautious about making sure that you comply. Something that we're seeing a lot of lawsuits on right now is um, pass-through billing. This is typically, um, you know, a lab arrangement with a, a rural hospital where rural hospitals need money and they're doing pass-through billing and the payers are not having any of it and they are going after the hospitals um, for this type of violation of their billing policies. Um, but again, this is another situation where we would um, really recommend that you be diligent in your review of the claims denials because just like with Medicare and just like with anybody else, they can be wrong um, and they just can't, you know, just don't have it right and you need to be ready to investigate these claims. So again, you may want to get um, a statistical extrapolation consultant, you may want to get a third-party billing or coding person on board as well to help you develop those, those arguments. Um, and again, same as with the administrative appeals process for Medicare, getting your attorney involved early will um, give you the protection to the extent possible of the attorney-client privilege. 
Um, another practice tip, and this is really good for any interactions you have with either Medicare or a commercial payer, is you're gonna wanna document every interaction and confirm in writing whenever possible. So if you have a phone call, ask them if you can get an email. If you're requesting an extension of time, ask them if you, if you can email them or if they will email you to confirm the extension of time. If they won't do that or if it's not possible for whatever reason, then do a uh, memo to the file and just say, on this date, Courtney Tito spoke with John Smith at Cigna and he said that yes, we could have an extension of time to respond to this demand until June 1st and just put it in the file somewhere so that you can reference it later. So next I want to take a little time to go through um, medical necessity documentation requirements. Um, so we're stepping a little bit outside of the actual process part of it um, and looking at what's required when you are wanting to have successful claims. The definition of medical necessity is right here on your screen and I won't read it to you but I give you the statutory reference as well. Um, but the important part to remember about medical necessity is that it has to be medically necessary for that specific beneficiary's specific um, condition or illness. So there can't be general you know, declarations within notes that say this is medically necessary. That won't fly for either Medicare or a commercial payer. Um, if you are looking at perhaps a state Medicaid claim, you're going to want to look at um, their state definitions as well. And then the other thing not to forget to look at um, for Medicare for sure, but also for the commercial payers that are following Medicare for their billing guidance is you're going to want to look at the national coverage determinations, the local coverage determinations, um, and maybe even OIG compliance guidance, which is all available on the, on the web. Um, um, Move on. The next thing, and this is really important, and this comes out of um, one of the CMS manuals, um, that the, the billing provider, that's the, pr the provider that is responsible for obtaining the supporting documentation from a referring physician or from an inpatient facility. It's the billing provider that gets reimbursed, so it's the billing provider that's on the hook for um, making sure that the documentation is accurate. And in the case of labs or pathologists, that's really tough because they have no interaction with patients. And so that can be a really difficult um, pro you know, place to be in. Um, so an another practice tip we have is we often work with our lab or pathology clients to prepare what we call physician education letters or annual notices. And these are something that they can send to their clients that say, hey, this is what Medicare requires and this is what we need of you so that we can make sure that we're all on board and that the reimbursements go through the way that they're supposed to. And these have been really helpful. Sometimes they'll reference a specific LCD or an NCD, or sometimes they're just very general about, you know, the annual notices talk about everything from Medicare guidelines to, um, you know, who to contact if you have an issue, whether there's financial assistance policies. So keeping, um, the other providers that you work with um, informed about what everybody's supposed to do, I think is really helpful. And we've found that our clients have gotten a, a real good value out of, out of working with that. Um, so this next slide talks about what are some of 
the more common documentation errors. And again, I'm just going to continue to, to use labs as an example. Um, but the most common ones are insufficient documentation errors, so incomplete progress notes, unsigned, undated, not enough detail. For example, it just says, you know, test for, you know, for a tox lab perhaps, you know, test for this drug or test, test for marijuana, but it doesn't say why the doctor or the physician felt that the need for testing for marijuana on that particular day was required. Um, the other issue is unauthenticated medical records. So if there's no signature or if it's an invalid signature. The thing to remember for documentation errors is that if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. As far as Medicare is concerned, as far as most payer, commercial payers are concerned, if it's not written down, they don't care. Um, there was a, a case, Grote versus Boston Heart Diagnostics, and this is, again, for any lab providers, that was really helpful for labs because it says that labs may rely on a physician's determination of medical necessity. Um, and that's important because whenever a provider signs or submits a CMS Form 1500, they are certifying to the medical necessity of all the claims in there. So for any provider or supplier out there, please make note of that. That certification is very important. And in the unlikely and awful situation that you were ever in a false claims investigation or something like that, that certification can be very important to the case that's presented. So be wary of that as you sign those, those forms or submit those forms. Um, so next, um, we're going to look at Medicare signature requirements. So um, Medicare requires that all services provided are authenticated by the author, which means you need to have a handwritten or electronic or a stamped signature if the physician has some sort of disability. Um, there are certain exceptions out there, but they're not um, off, they're not, you know, a lot of them. Um, so for all of you providers who may order tests, remember that when you order a test, if you don't sign the requisition, which isn't great, we want you to sign the requisition, but if you don't do that, you're going to want to have something in your records that says, on June 1st, I ordered this urinalysis test for this patient because she came in and said she smoked pot last weekend and she can't do that because she's going through a pain management program. So we need to go through and make sure that, you know, that she's not doing that or how much pot she actually smoked or if there's other illegal drugs. So something to the effect of why that test was ordered needs to be documented in the progress notes and then the progress notes need to be signed. And that, of course, can be an electronic signature if you're using an EMR or EHR system. Um, Next, I wanted to just keep going with that and say that you can't add late signatures, um, but you can have a signature authentication process. I want to be very clear that medical records become legal records and legal documents in this process. So you don't want to alter them in any way after the fact. If you do add notes later, if you do go back and add them later, then you want to date them on the day you added the notes and sign them on that date. Um, so you're not predating or postdating anything, you're just adding an additional note that is dated on the date that you altered the record. Um, if the signatures are illegible, you could submit a signature log or an attestation statement. Um, we use attestations quite a bit for both um, signature issues as well as medical necessity. 
um, issues. Um, for example, if the medical necessity isn't documented in the progress notes, we could reach back out to the physician and say, why was this service medically necessary? And they could come up with a very specific attestation that says, on this date of service, I saw this beneficiary for this condition. The treatment, the test, the diagnosis, whatever it is, is medically necessary for this beneficiary at this time because, and they need to be specific. Again, it can't be a blanket medical necessity statement. Um, it needs to be really specific. So um, now I want to uh, switch gears and um, move to the 60-day rule reverse false claims act. This slide right here gives you um, some of the citations, so if you need to come back and look at them, you have that information there for you. Um, if you'll remember, Excuse me. In the beginning, I told you that I hoped that there would be two major takeaways that you would get from this presentation. The first was the importance of comprehensive responses to medical records requests, both federal and, and private payer. And the second comes in this section. Every single Medicare provider has an affirmative obligation to investigate overpayments, even if it is just a single overpayment. And I'll get more into more detail on this shortly. Um, but there has always been a statutory requirement that if a provider receives a payment for Medicare services to which it is not entitled, it must return them. That's always been there. What didn't come until more recently was the um, final rules and the regulations from CMS on how to implement that statutory requirement. So in May 2014, CMS published the rule, the final rule for Medicare's Part C and D, which was um, somewhat recently overturned in court. And it's the reason that that's important is because it has very similar language to the later drafted um, final rule for Medicare Parts A and B, which was issued on February 12, 2016. To my knowledge, there has not been a challenge to this yet, um, but if there is a challenge, then the prior overturning of the other rule will be very important. There is no um, there is no rule for Medicaid yet, but the general rule is that the statute still applies and that if you generally follow the rules as established in Medicare Parts A and B final rule, um, then if there's no state-specific requirements, then you should be in good shape. So, moving on to the Part A and B rule. <clears throat> Again, just want to reiterate that the rule that CMS came up with in 2016 for the Parts A and B provider triggers a requirement to do an internal investigation um, to determine if there has been an overpayment, and if there has been an overpayment, to report and refund that. So we Again, recommend that you get counsel involved early to preserve the attorney-client privilege and really in this case to help you um, walk through the process of structuring the investigation and evaluating the report and refund options. Um, I'm going to, for the purposes of this presentation, you know, focus on the Part A and Part B rules. Um, although it's called the 60-day rule, providers actually have up to eight months to report and refund. 
The commentary to the rule provides that a provider can take up to six months to conduct an, inve an investigation after receipt of credible information that there has been an overpayment. What is credible information is a really fact-driven analysis, but the commentary provides some examples. For example, an overpayment demand is credible information triggering the 60-day rule. And as I mentioned earlier, if you get denied claims in the TPE process, that would also potentially be con considered um, credible information. It could also be a hotline complaint, and hopefully most of it, if you do find overpayments, they're coming through your own internal auditing process for billing and coding. So if you, it's important to remember that there is a six-year look back for this 60-day rule, and it's counted from the identification of an overpayment, and that term will be explained shortly. Um, if you are relying on credible information in the form of an overpayment demand from a MAC, it's important to remember that your Medicare appeal may be for a date of service range that's only 18 months to two years, but your obligation under the 60-day rule can be much broader. So in this case, our practice tip here is really that you review your document retention policies to ensure compliance, and here you can have scanned or electronic records, those are sufficient. Figure out who's accountable, who must be notified, what's the timeline, what documentation are you going to have for that. Um, you're also going to want to create an overpayment policy. If you already have an internal billing review compliance audit you know, system set up, that's great, but you're going to want to make sure you have a separate overpayment policy or it's incorporated within that where you can create um, written guidelines and policies for internal investigations, process, timing, and reporting expectations. Um, you're going to want to follow that policy and documentation, document the implementation process in detail. Um, so as you're going through the process, you're going to write down everything you've, you've done and how you did it so that you have that justification later should there be any pushback on your reporting and refunding. So the next slide, I'm going to talk about um, the term identify. And this is really a critical term in the commentary um, and in the rule for the 60-day rule. So the rule says that providers have an obligation to exercise reasonable diligence through timely, good-faith investigation of credible information. This includes pro proactive, not reactive, proactive compliance activities conducted by qualified individuals in good faith. Um, again, that credible information is determination is fact specific. Um, excuse me. To identify the re the overpayment, the amount of the refund must be quantified. So you need to, when you have an identified overpayment, you both need to confirm that an overpayment exists, and you need to quantify what that amount is which is why the rule gives providers 60 days, or six months to um, run the investigation before the 60-day clock starts. And as you'll see on the slide, the 60-day clock begins running after this reasonable diligence period or the investigative period. And six months sounds like a long time, and the rule does say that absent extraordinary circumstances, that's the max. But extraordinary circumstances, I think, are acts of God, like hurricanes or something of a devastation level, rather than we just couldn't get it done in time. 
Um, the thing to remember is those six months go very quickly. Oftentimes, when we start an investigation, and I'll give an example, we had a client who came to us and said that they had discovered an overpayment when they switched to a new billing system. And so they had just switched to it last year. They figured out the over, what caused the overpayment. They corrected it in the system, and they need to move forward, but they need to do, as is their requirement, do an investigation to see what claims were inadvertently incorrectly paid. So we got engaged, we got involved, and we set up the scope of the investigation. Now, in this case, we didn't feel we needed to go back six years because they had identified that the source of the problem was a, a conversion to a new billing software um, that was improperly implemented. So we only had to go back at this point, I think it was 12 or 16 months or something. We got our billing consultants involved. Everybody went through, started looking at the records. And as we started looking at the records, we realized that the problem was way more expansive than that. And our very quick, short investigation, um, which we should have been able to knock out in just a couple months, turned into a massive endeavor that required not only a billing consultant, but we brought on a statistical ex extrapolation expert because we felt that it would be impossible to review the number of claims that was requ required to be reviewed over the six-year period. Um, the final rule does allow you to use statistical extrapolation, so you don't have to work review 2,000 or 3,000 individual claims to determine if there was an overpayment. Um, you can work with a, a statistical expert to determine what an appropriate sample size would be, to um, determine what the parameters of that extrapolation will be, and to figure out what an extrapolated overpayment would be. And we had a very difficult time completing that investigation within the six months but we really didn't have a justification of extraordinary circumstances to go beyond that. So I say this to caution you because these investigations are never as simple as they seem. We have had one or two investigations where um, by sheer luck, the actual problem was much more limited than we thought. You know, we thought we were looking at 2000 claims and by the time we were done with reviewing everything, it was really maybe 28 claims with an overpayment of $400. And those are obviously the best ones to have a problem with. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so don't, don't hesitate to start the process early um, and to get this, this process going. Um, there is no minimum threshold. Uh, the preamble specifically states in the final rule, after finding a single overpaid claim, we believe it is appropriate to inquire further as to whether there are more appropriate, other, more overpayments on the same issue. Um, that is pretty drastic. You find one overpaid claim and you have to look at every other similar claim for the past six years to determine if there's been an overpayment, unless there is a reason for minimizing the length of that. So I just want you to think about that. This is a huge burden on providers because what happens if you choose not to investigate and for some reason the OIG or a USA finds out that you knew about it, you chose not to investigate, 
then suddenly you're subject to false claims liability, right? False claims liability is uh, treble damages, it's civil monetary penalties, there's some criminal implications there. So be very cautious in making the decision not to conduct an investigation and move forward. Um, it's uh, a hard business decision to make to engage an attorney and to conduct an investigation, especially when the overpayment that gets submitted is very minimal. I mean, we we have had a client who submitted one that was, I, I really do think it was about $400. Um, and certainly the legal expenses on it were much higher. But the peace of mind for not having that risk of false claims come about later was worth it to the client. You don't always need to involve a, um, an attorney. But again, that helps with the attorney-client privilege and they can help come up with the arguments for limiting the scope of the investigation. Um, this is why we say that proactive compliance activities are so important. Um, a single overpaid claim will trigger this. Just keep that in mind. Um, once you report and refund, if the CMS finds that there's an issue with that, they can refer it to BOIG for appropriate action, um, which is another reason why you want to document your investigation to show what you have done and how you did it. <coughs> Excuse me. Before we get to the refund options, I just wanted to, I provided this slide just so that you had some ideas of the questions you should be asking when you're um, trying to determine what the scope of your investigation should be. Um, again, those six months fly, you're gonna wanna start immediately upon discovery of a potential overpayment, um, but you're gonna wanna look at the duration. Are you gonna have to go back a full six months, or do you have a justification for it being a partial look back? Are there specific codes you can limit it to? Are there specific providers? Are you a hospital and you hired a provider who was using, you know, the wrong code or was using a modifier when they shouldn't have been, and all that really is required is to refund those and to do some training to make sure that that provider understands um, how they're properly supposed to do it. Is it large enough that you're going to want a third-party consultant or expert to give you some arguments and analysis on the claims review? Do you need a statistical expert if it's going to be a full six-year look back? Um, do you need to engage an attorney to take advantage of the attorney-client privilege? Timeline. Remember, you have six months to investigate so that you can identify, which means quantify and confirm the overpayment and then only 60 days to report and refund. We recommend that you calendar deadlines and de deliverables and who is responsible. I typically create a chart that sets out all the important timelines, the due dates, and who is responsible, whether it's the client, the consultant, or myself. Um, and I also set up weekly status conferences that are on the calendar for every week. If you need them, you have them. If you don't, then that's okay too, but that way everybody stays on the same page and we can check in and make sure that the investigation is continuing. Um, I was at another conference recently and in one of the sessions there was an OIG attorney talking about the OIG's self-disclosure protocol, um, which is not the 60-day rule, but it was interesting to me because her advice to the group is a, a, another practice tip. And she said, Always explore and investigate one step broader than what your original thought is. She said that that was 
the most important piece of advice she could give the providers in the room because her investigators are always wondering, why didn't the provider just do a little bit more and figure this out? And it's a very frustrating thing for them. So once you have identified your overpayments, um, again, confirmed and quantified what the overpayment is, there are um, a variety of ways where you can report and refund. Um, you'll need to make that decision uh, either with counsel or internally and look at the pros and cons for each of them. And I've listed them here. There's every MAC has a voluntary refund process. Most of the ones I've worked with have a specific form that you need to fill out. I would say about half of the ones I've done have um, a spreadsheet as well, that they a spreadsheet template that they want the claims listed on. Um, you can do claims adjustments, credit balances, voluntary offsets. You can also do the OIG um, self-disclosure protocol, um, or CMS has a self-referral disclosure protocol as well. Um, the decision on where to refund is going to partially depend on an analysis of the reasons why the overpayment occurred. Was it a simple billing or clerical error, or was it a stark or anti-kickback um, violation? It's also going to depend on your risk tolerance and the amount of overpayment um, and how much time you might have. If you're in the middle of a deal where you're trying to sell or buy a company, then you're going to want to get it done quickly, right? So you're going to choose one of the quicker options. If you're not in a rush and it's a stark violation, maybe you want to take advantage of CMS's self-referral disclosure protocol because that takes forever. <laughs> but the return on investment is pretty good. We've heard that the settlements that come out of this are really cents on the dollar. Um, so each one of these methods is going to come with its own pros and cons that will need to be incorporated into the analysis. Um, and you're also going to want to check state law because a lot of states have requirements regarding refunds of patient cost share amounts and whether those need to be um, sent back. A couple of final thoughts, and then I'll leave a little room for questions. Um, tolling. If you use the self-referral disclosure protocol or the OIG self-disclosure protocol, you, that will toll the period of time to identify and return an overpayment. Disclosures to the DOJ or Medi Medicare Fraud Control Unit do not toll the time. So keep that in mind. Again, I hammer this home and it's not meant to be self-serving, although I would love to help out as many of you as I can, get counsel involved early to establish the attorney-client privilege and maintain confidentiality as long as process. Document the entire process. Correct the problem. Identify and review your policies and procedures involved. Identify and review potentially relevant documents and prepare a summary report. Documentation is key through the entire process of being a provider, right? Whether it's just normal claim submission, whether you're going through the administrative appeals process, whether you're going through a commercial appeals process, or whether you're going through an internal investigation process. So I'm happy to take any questions that you have, or you all have my email and contact information on the first slide. And I just wanted to say thank you again um, for the opportunity to speak with you all today. Well, thank you, Courtney, so much. That was a really um, interesting and informative uh, presentation. We do have a few questions, um, if you would, wouldn't mind taking those. 
Sure. So, um, yes. Yeah, so the first one is um, when you do recommend, uh, or when do you recommend getting a consultant involved in the process? At what point? So I always recommend getting a consultant involved as soon as the post-payment review letter is issued and before that overpayment demand comes in and the clock starts. Because if you'll remember back in the beginning of this presentation, once that overpayment demand comes in, you really only have 30 days to um, get your uh, request for redetermination submitted if you want to stop recruitment, and every provider wants to stop recruitment. 30 days is not enough time to conduct an investigation. Um, so when you get that post-payment review results letter, you don't have a deadline, but you have all the information that you're going to get to um, do your um, appeal. Um, anything that you, you would be able to get from the MAC is in that letter. Um, so you'll get the, the benefit of extra time if you start the process and get whoever's going to be involved in the appeal process involved at that point. Um, we've also had a few clients who will retain a consultant when a medical records request arrives. Whether you do so at that stage is really fact-dependent and, again, has its own pros and cons because you don't want um, – one of the biggest concerns I have with that is at that stage, you don't know what Medicare sees as a problem with your claims, if anything. And you don't want to start looking at a potential problem from one angle when Medicare sees it from an entirely different angle. So again, that's fact specific, but definitely by the time you, as soon as you get the post-payment review letter. Okay. All right, uh, we have another question here. Are consultants really necessary for commercial overpayment demands if they can be resolved through settlement negotiations? So I'm going to unfortunately give you guys a very lawyer answer here and say it depends, um, which is my answer for almost anything, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, it's always beneficial to have an independent third party assist you, um, especially um, if you're doing this on your own. If you have an attorney involved, they will handle things from the higher level legal contractual policy bases, um, but they don't necessarily always have a medical background. Um, they may, like I am, really good at issue spotting in pathology and genetic and lab um, issues so that I can do that to the benefit of the client, but ultimately we need somebody with that medical background. Um, it's a little bit harder to have a third-party expert assist you in the commercial plans unless the commercial plan explicitly follows Medicare, which a lot of them do, um, but I always find the consultants to be helpful because even if it's not you know, a billing and coding question per se for Medicare, they can often point out um, really beneficial things in the records that the provider may think is obvious, but the payer wouldn't notice um, and the lawyer just wouldn't know. So those are things that can be developed through the use of, of consultants. Okay. That is a very lawyer thing to say. I have a lot of, uh, <laughs> I have a lot that come on our, our webinar uh, series and almost every time they say, well, it depends. <laughs> So, <laughs> so um, okay, thank you. Um, all right, we do have another question here. Um, do you recommend escalating to the ALJ if the QIC doesn't issue its decision within the 60 days? So after that whole discussion, again, it's going to be an it depends. Okay. Just as a reminder, so the, the QIC is the second level of appeal where it's the request for reconsideration. Uh, where they have 60 days to issue a decision. Um, 
you're really going to want to work with your team to weigh the pros and cons of this very closely. Because remember that once the appeal is past the QIC stage, whether a decision has been issued or not, recoupment begins. So in this case, it becomes somewhat of an economic financial decision. Um, but it also means you're going to be put on the massive delays in the ALJ process. And it will likely be years before it's even assigned to a docket. Um, a, on the other hand, the QIC is, are also um, really starting to have massive delays. So you may not get a, if you decide not to escalate, you may not get a decision there and you'll be sitting and waiting for a long time. So it's really gonna depend on the provider and its ability to withstand recruitment and what its goals are with the appeal. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think those are all the questions that we're going to do at the moment, but do you have any other words of advice or anything else that you wanted to leave us with? I don't think so, but I'm happy to answer any other questions offline.